have your Bibles this morning, would you open them up and turn to the Gospel of Mark? We continue to work through Mark, and this week we're in Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading from verse 30 through verse 44. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one. And you can find Mark chapter 6 on page 841. let's give our attention now to God's word and let's continue to worship him as he speaks to us. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do count it our great privilege this morning to gather as your people and to worship you. And your word directs us this morning. Psalm 103 commands us. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And O Father, we desire that this verse would be fulfilled in our our lives and in our hearts. That our lips would speak your or your praise. And not just our lips, but our, our whole being, our emotions, our affections. Even our bodies would cry out in praise of how great you are. Oh, Father, we pray. We do not want to forget your wondrous works as you have revealed yourself. And your wondrous works have been revealed throughout history, how you've created the world out of nothing, how you called Abram, how you saved a a people in the Exodus story, how you brought them to yourself and delivered them through the wilderness and brought them into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
how you gave so many promises to your people and the prophets and how you brought them all to bear in your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, Father, we pray this morning as we look into your word, as we scour the pages of redemptive history, that you would open our eyes to see the glory and the beauty of your Son, Jesus. Would you reveal him afresh to us? And would you show us his significance? And would you bear down that truth upon our hearts? Oh, Father, we rejoice that Christ Jesus not only died, but he was raised and that he is seated now and that he does a spiritual work now. He fully possesses the Spirit of God as our mediator. And he is committed to his church. And so, Father, we pray, build your church through Jesus' word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So symbols are a potent and economical way to communicate. Symbols are potent because they can evoke emotions, strong emotions, anger, fear, happiness, joy, in ways that words often cannot. And symbols are also economical meaning they can just register in a moment these deep feelings. No belabored speech is necessary. No footnotes are required. No lengthy explanation is needed. And we are all able, and many of us are excellent interpreters of symbols. Each day we behold potent symbols, and they register deep feelings within us, and we do this great work of looking at symbols and interpreting them without a commentary without explanations, without an instruction manual. Perhaps this seems a bit abstract this morning, so I can give you an example and help you out. So you're in a provincial park, and you're winding up a trail, and you're going to a scenic overlook. And as you make your way up to the scenic overlook, lo and behold, you see a couple, a man and a woman, and they're doing something strange. This isn't normal. The woman is standing there, and she's, she's crying, and the man is there on a knee, and he's got a little black box in his hand. When you see this scene, this symbol, you don't question, is this man merely tying his shoes? Has this woman received some sort of injury? You don't pull out your phone and start Googling, man on one knee, what does this mean? In an instant, you know what's going on here. You hear the wedding bells in your ears. You remember all the cheesy, romantic movies that you've been forced to watch throughout the years. You might be even reminded of your own wedding proposal. So symbols are potent and they're economical. But they're also dependent. Symbols only make sense when both parties in the communication process understand, share the same basic knowledge, share the same basic worldview, share the same basic stories. Without this shared knowledge, symbols are are worthless and pointless. This is illustrated beautifully in a video that went viral over a year ago. So in this scene, again, there's a man and a woman. The woman is amazed. She's She's astounded by what's happening, and, and there's the man. He's on one knee. He's got the little black box out. He's, he's doing his thing. No one's confused by this. No one's ignorant except a little three-year-old boy. And this poor little guy hasn't been trained in what this all means. He doesn't share this knowledge. He doesn't share the worldview. He doesn't share the, the stories. So this symbol, this marriage proposal before him is, is meaningless. 
And so when nature calls, here's this little boy in the middle of this sacred scene, relieving himself. And so there's no sanctity here. There's no reverence. There's no awe for this little boy. And so what does this have to do with the gospel of Mark? Well, this is the very problem for us. Often we're like the three-year-old boy. We just don't get what's going on when we read the scriptures. And so we're reading the Gospel of Mark, a book nearly 2,000 years old, and it takes place in a setting far removed from our own, ancient Palestine, with a culture and society far different from ours. And so when we look into Mark chapter 6, the text we just read, we see that this text is full of ripe symbols. In the face of gathering crowds, Mark records this about Jesus in chapter 6, verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And with no ample supply of of food, we hear this in chapter 6, verse 41. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Then in the midst of a barren wilderness, we are given this report by Mark in chapter 6, verse 42. And they all ate, and they all were satisfied. So we hear these symbols, and we have to ask, what do these symbols mean? What are we to make of them? What do they reveal about Jesus? And what do they they teach us? How are we to apply them to our own souls and make them profitable to us? And the frustrating thing is we look into the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't give us a clear explanation of how to answer these questions. He doesn't provide any footnotes. He doesn't give us a commentary. By the way, this is what this all means. And so what do we do with these these symbols that Mark has given us? Are we merely to conclude that Jesus is powerful? Jesus casts out demons. He He calms the storm with just his word and now he arrives on the scene and there's 5,000 men who are hungry and and he feeds them. Well, Jesus is indeed powerful. I believe to stop here would be to miss out on the riches of the gospel, to, to not eat of the gospel fat that is presented in our text. We would be like the little boy carelessly transgressing that which is holy, just not getting it. But the good news is that we have access to the mind of Mark this morning. We have access to a common story. We have access to the Old Testament scriptures. And this is how we can gain understanding of the symbols that Mark is placing before us about Jesus. And so this morning, we're not just going to dip our big toe into the Old Testament. We're going we're to jump in. We're going to fully immerse ourselves in the Old Testament scriptures so that we might gain competency in the worldview of Mark. So that when we go to this text about Jesus feeding these 5,000 men, that we might glimpse the glory and the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we might fully understand what Mark is saying to us and that we might press it in upon our our souls. So we can go to the Old Testament. This is what we're going to do. So the Old Testament, it spans from the book of Genesis all the way to the latter prophets, to the book of Malachi. And this great book can be told as a story about a flock of sheep and a shepherd. And so we pick up the story of the Old Testament in the land of Egypt. Here the people of promise, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have become enslaved by a ruler whose name is Pharaoh. 
And this Pharaoh, this, this king, shows no favor, no love towards the covenant people of God. He, he kills their children without compunction. He drives them into the ground by hard labor. But in this land of death and slavery and darkness, the people groan. And the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hears their cries. And what happens next in this story is best told by Psalm 78, verses 52 and 53. The psalmist says this, Then he, the Lord, led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And what the psalmist is saying here, he's commentating on the, the Exodus story. He's, he's rewriting it, getting it, giving it another go. And he says this, Though the flock was in ruin and disarray with no one to care for them, the great shepherd drew near. No enemy, no lion, no bear, no pharaoh would keep the shepherd from his beloved sheep. And as we look into the Exodus story, we see that the great shepherd's heart burns with compassion towards his people. The shepherd speaks of his heart in the book of Exodus. He reveals, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so this compassionate shepherd whose heart burns with love towards his people draws near and he liberates his flock. But this is not the end of the shepherd's gracious work. The shepherd then leads his people day and night through the great and terrifying wilderness. And then in a barren wasteland with no food, with no water, the shepherd feeds and cares for his flock. He splits the rock and there's water for his people. He makes bread rain down from heaven and he feeds them. And truly the psalmist speaks rightly. He led them in safety. And as we move forward in this story that the Old Testament tells, we see that the, the shepherd's heart is ever towards his flock in love and faithfulness. And in his love and mercy, he raises up under-shepherds. Under-shepherds, these are our men to care and tend to the flock of God. These men would be instruments of God's care, keeping the people from folly delivering to them the, the good word of their God and faithfully guiding them in the way that they should go. So we can go to Psalm 77, verse 20, and the psalmist helps us understand what this means. The psalmist talks about the Exodus, and he says, You, O God, led your people like a flock. And we can ask the psalmist, Well, how did you lead the people, O God? Well, the psalmist says, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And what the psalmist is saying is that the great shepherd, Yahweh, the Lord God, uses under-shepherds in his work of redemption. And so crucial is this role of the under-shepherd that when Moses, one of the first under-shepherds, faced his own death, when he'd have to set aside his own staff, when he'd have to give up his own ministry of care, he prayed this to the Lord in Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. He said, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and then bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And what is Moses so concerned about here? that there would be someone to care for the people of God. 
And Moses is not content to leave the task of shepherding to just any person, just to any man. For he understands that the fate of the flock depends upon the shepherding care they receive. Poor shepherding by ill-equipped and ungodly shepherds will lead the flock into ruin and death and decay. While wise and godly and prepared shepherds will lead the flock into health and prosperity. And as we read the narrative of the Old Testament, as we continue to move on in this story, we encounter under-shepherd after under-shepherd. We meet wise and godly shepherds, men like Joshua and Samuel and David. And under their care, we see righteousness. Under their care, we see life flourish in the nation of Israel. But we also meet foolish and perverse under-shepherds. We meet a man by the name of Rehoboam. In his folly, he splits the kingdom. We meet a man who's perverse. His heart is corrupt like Ahab. And under his care, idolatry, confusion, and death abounds. But as the story goes on, the shepherds of Israel become hopelessly corrupt. They follow their own hearts and they forsake the will of the great shepherd, Yahweh. And bad under-shepherd gives way to bad under-shepherd until finally the flock has been destroyed and scattered over the face of the earth. And it is here in the midst of confusion, idolatry, and death, with bad under-shepherds all around, that Ezekiel begins to speak. Ezekiel is a prophet, and he has a ministry of speaking to kings and to the people of God. And he gives an explanation. Why has the flock of God been scattered? The flock that God loves and delights in? Well, he gives an answer in chapter 34 of his great and long book. He says this in verses 2 and 4. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. Ezekiel looks, not just at his own day, but he looks all the way back in redemptive history and he sees the great problem within Israel. The shepherds, instead of feeding the flock of God, God's beloved sheep have been feeding themselves. Even worse, instead of living for the sheep, dying for the sheep, they used the sheep for their own purposes. They killed the sheep, they ate the sheep, and then they clothed themselves with God's beloved sheep, God's people. And so what is the result from this bad under-shepherding? Well, Ezekiel explains in the next verses, 5 and 6, he says, So they were scattered. Why? Because there was no shepherd. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And we can look at the whole Old Testament story and we can boil it down to these words from Ezekiel. What is the problem going on here? Because there was no shepherd. Shepherd. But there is good news in the book of Ezekiel. There is good news in this story. And the story of the shepherd and the sheep is not over. The shepherd of the Exodus story. We remember this shepherd. The shepherd whose heart burned with love and compassion towards his sheep. The shepherd who heard the groanings of his people. The shepherd who rescued his people from Pharaoh. 
What does he do? Well, he promises to return again and tend to his flock. Ezekiel announces good news in chapter 34. He says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. The Lord says, I will take the shepherding duties on myself and I will come and I will gather my people to myself. And we can look into Ezekiel's prophecy and we can ask, well, how will the Lord do this? How will he extend this shepherding care? How will he gather a lost people together? How will he minister to the injured and to the weak and to the hurt? Well, we can reason here from redemptive history, from the rest of the story. Just as the Lord used Moses and Aaron in the Exodus, just as the Lord used godly kings like David and Solomon, the Lord promises a new under-shepherd, an under-shepherd completely faithful and loyal, an under-shepherd who will always seek the good of the sheep no matter the cost. And Ezekiel writes about this under-shepherd. He says this at the end of chapter 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So what is Ezekiel doing? Well, he's looking out at a people who are scattered and confused and decimated, and he tells them about the shepherd that they desperately need. And when we gaze on at the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament, they write with great anticipation of this coming day that Ezekiel preaches about. They look forward with hope to the great day of the shepherd. When will this shepherd come and what will it look like for the shepherd to arrive? And when we look at the other prophets, we find out when this shepherd arrives, it will be a day of radical reversal. Food will be found in the wilderness. Isaiah sings in hope about this great day of the shepherd. In chapter 49 of his book, he says this, They shall feed along the ways. On all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. The shepherd is going to come and he's going to feed his sheep. Even more, when the shepherd comes, it's going to be a day of pure satisfaction for the people of God. There will be no hunger. There will be no thirst. A people, a flock, will be at rest before their great God. And Joel writes in chapter 2 of his book, he says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So this morning we've told a great story. We've moved from, from the book of Exodus all the way into the prophets, spanning from God's works to, to hope what God will one day do for the people of God. And we have to assert this morning that while the Old Testament tells a grand story and an important story, it does not tell us a complete story. We leave the book of Ezekiel, we leave the book of Isaiah and Joel looking for a shepherd. We're looking for his salvation and that great day of satisfaction and salvation. And Mark, as a writer and a preacher of Jesus, as he writes this gospel story out, he expects that we, have, we would have read the story of the shepherd and the sheep from the Old Testament. He expects that we've been acquainted with the writings of Moses, that we've heard the explanations of Ezekiel, that we have pondered the prophecies of Isaiah and Joel. 
But Mark also expects something more from us as the readers and hearers of his story. He doesn't just desire that we would know these proof texts intellectually, that we would have them memorized, that we would have a reading competency in the Old Testament, but he desires something more, that our appetites would be shaped by what the Old Testament says. Mark expects that we would have the longings of Moses stored up in our hearts, that Moses' prayer would be found on our own lips. Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. It would be a people who pray, oh God, what we need desperately is a faithful man who will lead us in and lead us out and give us the word of God. Mark expects that we would have fed ourselves on the prophecy of Ezekiel. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. He expects that we'd be yearning to see his great work. The great work of the shepherd when the shepherd arrives and gathers a people. He expects that we would crave the food of the shepherd as described by Joel and Isaiah. That Isaiah's words, that Joel's words would be on our mouths. They shall feed along the ways. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. That we be a people who pray, Oh God, would you give us an eternal food? A food that will make us happy and full forever. And if we come longing, if we come expecting, if we come craving, there is good news for us. Mark will deliver into our, our souls the good news that we need. He will bring near and place into our laps the object of our longing and expecting and, and craving. And as we carefully look into Mark's gospel, as we carefully attend to his words and his symbols, he meets our needs in three ways this morning. Mark meets our needs first by revealing the identity of Christ. And so now we can move from the Old Testament into Mark chapter 6 and investigate Mark's words. So in Mark chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples are seeking reprieve from the crowds and all of their needs. But the crowds relentlessly follow and they seek after Jesus even in the midst of the wilderness. And it is in this context that Mark records this in verse 34. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What is Mark talking about here? We have to connect what Mark is saying about Jesus with the great story we just told. What Moses so greatly dreaded, what Ezekiel wrote against so powerfully in his own day is a present reality before the Lord Jesus. The people of God, the beloved sheep of the shepherd are scattered about. They are sick from unhealthy preaching and they have not been led in faithfulness and care. They are wounded. They are sick and they are sore. And the great problem is this, Mark says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. But if we look closely at verse 34, verse 34 does not only reveal the sad state of affairs within Israel, it also reveals the precious good news of who Jesus is. Verse 34 continues to say, And he, Jesus, began to teach them many things. So here's this crowd without a shepherd, and Jesus begins to teach him, What does this mean? And here Mark is inviting us to connect all the works, all the words of Jesus that Jesus has done so far in the Gospel of Mark. 
What has Jesus done? He, he teaches, he heals, he forgives, he casts out demons, he calls men to himself, he, he forgives sinners. And so we can ask in light of all of Jesus' works, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God? Mark is telling us this. It means that Jesus is the shepherd of Israel. He is the one to whom the law, the prophets, and the the writings point and anticipate. And we need to let this news settle in upon our souls. What is Mark saying? He's saying this. Jesus is the true heir of Moses. An heir that will faithfully go in and out before the sheep. An heir that will, will shepherd and faithfully teach the word of God to the people of God. He will lead the people in righteousness and he will lead them into a land of, of life and health for their souls. But Mark continues to teach there's more we can know about Jesus. He's not only the heir of Moses, he is the better shepherd. He exceeds and outstrips all the previous shepherds of Israel. We can think of the best. He is better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He is better than David. For Jesus himself is the last and final shepherd in God's plan. This Jesus we meet in the Gospel of Mark will never set down his staff. He will never set aside his ministry of care and leading. He will never stop preaching and teaching the good word of God. And Jesus himself testifies to us his identity from the Gospel of John. And when Jesus says this word, he's speaking of the finality and the climax of redemptive history in himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The prophecies of Moses and Isaiah and Joel all come to bear upon me. I am the good shepherd. You are the one, I am the one that you have been longing for. What precious good news this is for us as God's people or better yet, as God's sheep, we stand secure in our shepherd. We do not fear the prowling lion or bear or even Satan himself. We do not fear hunger or drought or even death, but we rest in Jesus' good words. All the law, all the prophets, all the writings come bearing down upon this one man we meet in the Gospel of Mark, and he testifies to us. He says, I am the good shepherd. And we can take heart in this. Jesus has pledged himself to the flock of God forever. Mark continues to meet our needs again by revealing a second thing, by revealing the character of Jesus. So we can go back to Moses, and Moses rightly understood the importance of character in shepherding. Poor shepherding by ill-equipped and ungodly shepherds will lead the flock into what? Into ruin and death and decay. While wise and godly and prepared shepherds will lead the flock of God into righteousness and life and satisfaction. And so if Mark is writing to show us that Jesus is our shepherd, we have to ask, well, Mark, what kind of shepherd is this Jesus? Do I want to be shepherded by this person? What kind of character does this Jesus have? And again, we need to linger over verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the context of this verse cannot be lost on us this morning. Remember, Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away from the crowds for rest. 
They've been working hard. They've had so many needs around them that they didn't even have time to eat or rest for themselves. This is the second time that phrase has been used in the Gospel of Mark. But after these men travel on the boat to a different region, to a desolate place, they get on shore and what do they find there? Well, they find the bustling and jostling crowds and all their many needs. There they are. What does this communicate to Jesus and his disciples? I think it would communicate something like this. There is no rest for you. There is no escape for you. There is no sabbatical for you. But how does Jesus respond He responds so differently than us. His heart is not filled with irritation or callousness. Rather, he looks upon these people and all of their needs, and he feels compassion. And Mark begins to unveil the good character of Jesus to us. Jesus stands in direct contrast to all the sinful shepherds of Israel. They fed themselves, they killed the sheep and clothed themselves with their wool. They neglected the sick, they overlooked the injured, they forsook the lost. But in Jesus, we have a compassionate shepherd. And his heart burns with love towards his people. And we see it in this text. He comes not to serve himself, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And at every point in the gospel story, Jesus divests himself. He divests himself of comfort. He divests himself of security. He divests himself of his energy, of his goods. And most importantly, Jesus divests himself of his very own life for the flock of God. And this morning, we as God's people, God's sheep, need to press the character of Jesus into our souls. This is probably one of the most important questions you can ask. What does Christ feel towards his people? What does he feel towards his church? What does he feel towards those whom he has redeemed with his very blood? Well, the answer is this. He burns with compassion and love towards his people. And we must encourage our hearts in the good character of Jesus. Jesus takes up the words of the Old Testament and he speaks to us himself. He says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we need to apply Jesus' good character to all of our life in all situations. Are you a sheep who is weary and tired this morning? But the compassionate shepherd burns with love towards you. He addresses you in your weariness. What does he say? Well, he speaks from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, and he says, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I am equipped to sustain your weary soul. Or are you a sheep who is downtrodden and bent over? Well, the compassionate shepherd burns with love towards you. The shepherd addresses you in your downtroddenness, in your your bent-overness. Jesus speaks to us in Isaiah 42, verse 3. He says, A bruised reed I will not break, and a faintly burning wick I will not quench. I will meet your needs. I will sustain your life. Or are you a sheep who yet wallows in the mud of sin, yet struggling with guilt and shame? 
Oh, the compassionate shepherd's heart burns with love to you, and he still speaks this great, amazing word of grace. Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What good news to consider. And though we are often people who are sick and broken and confused and stranded, our confidence lies not in ourselves, but in our compassionate Savior. And we rest confidently in his character, for his heart is infinitely warm towards his church. His compassion and loving care has no end towards his blood-bought people. His compassion, his love will, will never run out, it will never run dry. It is like a well that has no bottom. And our compassionate shepherd never begrudges us for our many needs. We can run and catch him as he looks for rest, and he yet looks with compassion on us. And Mark records these beautiful words, and he had compassion on them. And we can be even more sure of this. He has compassion on us. And Mark meets our needs a third way this morning. And he does it by revealing the food of our good shepherd. So in our text, a distinct theme appears, the theme of wilderness. It appears three times as you work through this short story. In verse 31, Jesus directs his disciples into the wilderness. He commands them saying, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. We can retranslate desolate to a wilderness place. Same words. However, because of the crowds, this place of rest, this desolate place, quickly becomes a place of concern and distress. While the large crowds are there feasting upon Jesus' words, what happens? The day grows late and these people get hungry. And Jesus' disciples sense what is going on and they cry out in despair to Jesus. They say, this is a wilderness place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. And so we see in this text that there's no easy solution to this problem of food. For these people are in a wilderness. There aren't any grocery stores. There aren't any fields to pick food from. And even if the disciples wished to provide food for the great crowd, they could never afford it. When the disciples search out the crowd to see what provisions there are, they return with five loaves of bread and two fish. Probably not even enough food to to keep a family alive. But it is here in the wilderness in this place of need, that the Lord Jesus uses this occasion to further explain, to further amplify what it means for him to be the shepherd of Israel. With all the other options off the table, the crowds cannot go anywhere else. There is no food there. The disciples cannot purchase any food for these people. This happens in verse 41. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And we have to be clear, this is not merely a raw display of power, but it is a potent symbol signaling that the long-awaited shepherd of Israel has finally come. It is a potent symbol that the long-awaited day of salvation has actually finally arrived, and it has arrived in the person and work of Jesus. And we left the Old Testament with the prophecy of Ezekiel in our ears. Ezekiel says in hope, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, 
and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And what do we see in the Gospel of Mark? We see a vast crowd, a people without a shepherd, arrayed and sitting down, eating food from the hands of Jesus. Jesus faithfully feeds the sheep. And we can ask, well, what becomes of the sheep? Or better yet, what does it mean to partake in Jesus' shepherding ministry? Mark records the result. He goes to verses 42 and verses 44 and says this. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And what precious words to consider this morning. They all ate and they all were satisfied. And here we get a little picture of what it means to be a part of Jesus' flock. And we can reason with our souls this morning. If Jesus looked upon the hungry crowds and had compassion on them, filling their bellies with bread and fish, how much more will the Lord Jesus look upon our hungry souls and have compassion on us, feeding us and filling us with eternal food? He is the shepherd of Ezekiel chapter 34. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. We have this good hope. Our good shepherd will not let his blood-bought sheep go hungry, but he will faithfully feed them. And Jesus beckons us this morning from John chapter 6. He teaches us and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We can rejoice this morning in Jesus' words. What do these words mean to us as God's sheep? Well, it means that Jesus has pledged himself to us for our eternal satisfaction. If we come to Jesus and we eat of him, we will never be hungry. We will find a portion that will fill us up and truly and fully satisfy us. For in Christ Jesus, there is true life, there is true food, for he is the good shepherd. And so indeed, symbols are potent and they are economical. And may these potent and economical symbols from Mark chapter 6, enlightened by the Old Testament story, bring refreshment and even salvation to your souls this morning. Because Mark is announcing the good news. The shepherd has come. The prophecies of Ezekiel, Joel, and Isaiah have been fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark works to assure us this shepherd's character is impeccable. His heart burns with compassion towards his sheep, and he will never set aside his staff. He will never give up his care of ministry. And he feeds his people with the best food of all himself. And he invites us this morning. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray this morning, would you work faith in our hearts? Would you use these symbols written by Mark to stir us up? Would you persevere us in faith? Would you even awaken faith this morning through these potent symbols? Oh, what good news we have to celebrate. 
Oh, Father, would you cause us to worship now and enjoy your son? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's rather fitting this morning that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Would the servers come forward as we partake in this great meal? This meal is so fitting today. We've heard the prophecies. We've read the law of the prophets in the Old Testament. We've heard the longings of Moses. Oh, that there would be a man who would go out before us and come in before us. We heard the the prophecy of Ezekiel. Oh, that there would be the last shepherd, one who would never go away. And we heard the prophecies of Joel and Isaiah looking for a feast, looking for food in the wilderness. And the good news this morning is this. Paul tells us, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that not one prophecy has been left untouched from the Old Testament. Not one good word of, the, of God has been left unattended to. But all the prophecies, all the predictions, all the words fall upon the broad shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. He fills it all up. And so truly this morning we get to confess confess with joy that Jesus is our good shepherd. He's a shepherd who has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will be with us to the very end of the age. He's a shepherd who has promised to guard his sheep in all circumstances. He says in the gospel of John, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. And he is a shepherd who burns with love and compassion towards his sheep. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And brothers and sisters, the tangible evidence of Jesus' shepherding ministry, the tangible evidence of his good character is laid out before us in these elements. So look at the bread. Look at the cup this morning. Jesus has given us these precious symbols that he might work assurance in our hearts. Jesus has preached the gospel in our ears this morning and he places the gospel in our hands and he will put the gospel even into our mouths so that we might have assurance in him. And as you partake of these symbols, be reminded of Jesus' eternal promise and presence. Be reminded of his compassion and love towards you. Be reminded of his sovereign keeping and preserving power. This is what this meal is all about. So as the sheep of God, hear again the call of Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the offer of the table this morning. But we must do the work of fencing. That's the word for this. We have to fence this table because this this table is not for every person. Jesus speaks plainly to us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So we must say that this meal is not a bare ritual, but is real communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it is for those who have really cast themselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for those who have really come in faith saying, Jesus, you are indeed my good shepherd and you are better than anything else. You are my true portion. You are my true food and my true drink. And so if that is not your heart, if Christ Jesus isn't your good shepherd, this is not a meal, who is, this is not a meal that is for you. But I do urge you this morning, Jesus' word, Jesus' invitation yet applies to you. He does call you to himself. The offer is good. And so let's go to our God in prayer now, confessing our sin and hoping in Jesus. Oh, Father, we have to reckon with who we truly are at this table, and we truly are a sinful and guilty people. Your word addresses us from the book of Jeremiah. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. No, Father, this is our story. We are a people who have left you behind and have tried in our hardest to find satisfaction anywhere and in anything digging in the dirt, but only finding dirt. And so we confess our folly and our stupidity. And we humbly return to you. We take hold of the promise of Jesus. And we cling to him for our salvation and our life, trusting that his blood indeed wipes away sins. And the power of his spirit does overcome our corruptions. And so, Father, we rejoice in your salvation this morning. Would you work assurance in our hearts even now? We pray in your son's name. Amen. So hear the word of institution from Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mike, would you give thanks now for the bread?
Savior brings to new life, ruling and picturing at your right hand, Father, so that we might have new life. Father, thank you for his body broken for us, and for that we do rejoice. Amen. As God's beloved sheep, we have no reason to be hungry, for the good shepherd comes to us this morning, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. Fred, would you give thanks for the cup 